You're listening to Everybody Pulls the Tarp, the go-to podcast for high performers. I'm Andrew Moses. Each week, you'll hear my thought-provoking conversations with Olympians, pro athletes, CEOs, elite coaches, best-selling authors, and other high performers to uncover their secrets to success. Get ready to be inspired each week when we talk about leadership, teamwork, work ethic, and more. Are you ready? Let's go. This week, I have two guests and a conversation that you don't want to miss. Hootie and the Blowfish drummer and two-time Grammy Award winner Jim Sonnefeld is back here on Everybody Pulls the Tarp. And I'm also joined by Billboard Top 100 singer and hit songwriter Edwin McCain. So let me get this one set up for you. First, the story on Jim, who most people simply call Sony. As you may remember, if you listened to my first conversation with Sony back in July of 2023, he and his bandmates Mark Bryan, Dean Felber, and Darius Rucker started playing gigs in 1989 at small bars and fraternity parties at the University of South Carolina. They booked their own gigs, hung up posters to promote their shows, and scraped money together to reserve time at local recording studios. In 1994, they released their first album, Cracked Rear View, and it was a massive success. The album hit number one on the Billboard charts and features now iconic hits like Let Her Cry, Only Want to Be With You, and Hold My Hand. Here, let's listen to a little bit of Hold My Hand. I absolutely love that song, and it always takes me back. Hearing Hootie play Hold My Hand and so many of their other hits live when I saw them on tour in 2019 was an absolute thrill. After the success of Cracked Rear View, Hootie and the Blowfish would go on to win two Grammy Awards, release six more studio albums, and they've sold over 25 million albums worldwide. Simply put, Hootie and the Blowfish is one of the most iconic bands of all time. And in their early days back in South Carolina, Hootie and the Blowfish would cross paths with another young musician named Edwin McCain. Back then, Edwin was playing outside of bars and restaurants in South Carolina and dropped out of college after making 150 bucks playing in the waiting area of a Mexican restaurant. As he put it, at that point, I was rich. Fast forward a bit, and soon after, Edwin would go on to befriend the guys in Hootie and the Blowfish and the band took Edwin under their wing in his early days. From there, Edwin went on to achieve his own global fame and success with his mega-hit song, I'll Be. I'll Be spent 24 weeks on the Billboard Top 100 and peaked at number five. If you were alive in the 90s, I think you've heard this one. Let's listen to a little bit of I'll Be. The greatest battle of your life. 
Many people refer to that song as the wedding song of the decade. After I'll Be, Edwin released another big-time hit, I Could Not Ask For More. I Could Not Ask For More spent 20 weeks on the Billboard Top 100, and I'll Be and I Could Not Ask For More are widely considered two of the most iconic love songs in the history of pop music. Since then, Edwin has built upon his massive pop success with a tireless year-round touring schedule, and he still plays upwards of 100 shows each year throughout the United States. And along the way, he continues to collaborate with Sony and the rest of the Hootie guys he befriended so many years ago back in South Carolina. Sony recently re-released his debut solo album from 2008 called Snowman Melting, featuring a collaboration with none other than Edwin McCain. And in just a few months, Hootie and the Blowfish will head out on their summer camps with Trucks Tour starting in May of 2024, and Edwin will be touring with them again. In my conversation with Sony and Edwin, you'll get a behind-the-scenes look at both of their extraordinary careers and the mindsets and techniques that powered their creativity and persistence to achieve their dreams. Our conversation is raw, honest, and it's a powerful reminder about the importance of friendship, connection, and lifting others up. I can't wait for you to hear it. So, let's pull the tarp and get straight to Sony and Edwin McCain. All right, where I want to begin, I want to begin with you, Edwin. I was thinking back to the conversation I had this summer with Sony, and I asked him about a, a drum competition that he went to as a kid in Chicago. He didn't want to go in, but his parents and his drum teacher convinced him. And not only did he go in, he ended up winning the whole thing. And I know that you had a guitar teacher in college in particular who encouraged you to start playing in front of the class. And I'm wondering, in your case, what led to that moment? At what, and what do you remember most about that experience? Actually, I just had him come sit in with us in Pennsylvania. I have stayed in touch with that, that guy my whole career. His name is Tom Yoder, and he's like a shredder guitar player, like an 80s like shredder guy. And uh, I thought it was going to be like a classical music classical piano or classical guitar and so i was like do i need to get a nylon string guitar and start like relearning all this stuff and and uh he was like no it's not that kind of class and it was like it was just kind of a of a hang and so everybody brought their guitars in we listened to music we talked about songwriting and then he we went a part of the part of the curriculum was that you had to play a song in front of the class and so i dusted off some kind of Hendrix song and played in front of the class and he pulled me aside after the class he goes I don't know what you're doing but you need to be out there playing gigs and don't worry about having enough songs just go out there and play you'll, you'll figure it out and uh at the time I was like really because I think I was probably 18 or 19 and I had been a singer in a band in high school but I did I couldn't play well enough to accompany myself for a whole gig and he was like don't worry about it they just you can learn a hundred songs with four chords and just go out there and start playing. And so I ended up moving to Charleston and I crashed a car and I owed about four grand on the repairs. And I didn't want to have to call my parents to tell them. So I needed to get extra work. So I started busking on the streets and this Mexican restaurant 
that I was busking in front of asked me if I could play two nights a week. And they said they would pay me 75 bucks a night. And then I dropped out of college the next day. I was like, I'm rich. So that was it. That was the entire series of events that set me on this course. (laughs) So you, you just went to the, the university registrar the next day and you said, I'm rich. I'm done with this. I'm making $150 a week playing guitar at the San Miguel's like, how much more money do you need to make in life? Like I'm officially loaded at this point. I was like, I am making money playing music. And that was it. That was the end of that. At that point, Edwin, did you, and I want to get back to you, Jim, in a second, but Edwin, at that point, did you aspire to have a successful career in music or did you just say, you just saw I'm playing a guitar and I'm getting paid cold, hard cash. Not in any way. My biggest aspirations at that moment was that the people that sat on that deck would not see the rats running between their feet and ruin my gig. I was, that was my most, that was my biggest concern was that, that I had people to actually play my songs to. And it worked out perfectly because this is where people sat while they waited on their tables. And so I never had an audience that was there longer than four or five songs. And I only knew 10 songs. So then I could just wait until it cleared out and play my 10 songs again. It was like the perfect starter gig. And no, I didn't have any. I had no visions of grandeur in any way. And I didn't even actually start thinking that it was possible to go more than just playing on the decks of restaurants until actually until Hilton had when the Hootie guys were coming through playing at the old post office, the all night jam at the post office. They used to have those as bar on Hilton head. They would have these like, it was, I remember one, one of the all night jams, it was y'all, it was widespread, all good. I want to say give droll and y'all. And it started at midnight, went to like eight in the morning. And I was like, that was presented by Mr. Jack Tarver as the all night tractor pull. Yeah. So I don't know why he thought this was a fun idea, but let's play until it gets light out so we can really be sad when the doors open. And also, at some point, we do have to pull a riding lawnmower, which he called a tractor, through the actual venue out the double side doors, which is pretty hilarious. And so the bar is set low in the late 80s and early 90s for all of us, as it should be. You should want to just go out and play some damn music and see a few people, uh, you know, enjoy it. And, and wow, if there's 20 bucks or a free beer tab at the end of the show, hell yeah, that's like the big bonus. It's nobody is looking at getting paid in the beginning. We certainly didn't. We ended up coming up with a great math, which was we will try and find some gigs that we don't love where you have to play three 60-minute sets, a lot of covers, but you might get paid 400 bucks which is going to help fund a little bit of gas and put into the kitty for, uh, you know, maybe get in a studio to record your originals or make up for when you get paid $65 to open up for Johnny Quest in Winston-Salem and and a 12-pack. So you're you're juggling math if you're lucky enough to even get math in the quotient. But most of us are pretty happy not counting anything besides the beginning of the song. Sony and Edwin, I'm curious. 
Edwin talked about Hilton Head there. Do you guys remember the first time that that you both met? What was that experience like? And I guess what did you think of each other at that moment? Well, I mean, to me, they were already famous playing at the old post office because all the bands that came through there were already touring. So to me, they were, you know, they, they were already playing colleges. And I was, that would be the first time me and Sony met. But I met Darius and Mark back in the uh, Muldoon days when they used to do yeah. open mic night, even before it was Hootie. So I kind of knew them. And so by the time they came through as Hootie and the Blowfish, it was big time. And Edwin, I'm curious just to double click on that a little bit. I've heard you say that you've used the phrase in the past, like Hootie and the Blowfish let you kind of ride along, come along 100% for their ride. What was it about them that you think led them to do that? I don't know. I honestly, I think it was like, well, we, we might as well bring him because he's just going to drive us crazy if we don't. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it is that, truly. There are some people who would probably have the title hangers-on or whatever, but the picture is not just as simple as one person benefiting from one other band's philanthropy like that. It's There's a train, you know, and this train is long, and it's been connecting for decades, really, in South and North Carolina, where... Yeah, Edwin is latching on to Hootie and the Blowfish because Johnny Quest latched on to them, who latched on to Dylan Fence, who latched on to fill in the blank. It goes back, everybody, at least in our region, I can't claim any other place, but that's the way it was done down there. There were a few competitive bands that maybe didn't want to partake in that philanthropy of, yeah, man, we're making music. Come on, you just get in the bus, whatever. Uh, but in the South, where we were from, it was. And so everybody was on this long train and everybody was riding. You know, there was always somebody above you. And there was, if you were doing doing it right, you were bringing somebody along with you as well. So it, it always, it does a couple of things. It, it forges a little bit of gentle competition, which is, wow, here's this guy who's got silky, cool, long hair like mine, this Edwin guy. He's got a killer voice. His band is slick when he finally got a band. Like, I guess we need to keep our game going here. We're not at the top of anything. You know, it makes you kind of push, and you see other artists doing what they do best, and it's it's a motivator. So we, we always, you know, where you're looking forward and back to pick up tips along the way and see how you can do it better. And sometimes you get somebody coming along that, Damn, you don't want to share a stage with. They're called Cowboy Mouth, by the way, because they will always blow you off the stage, even if they're your support act, because they're so energetic and they demand and command the audience's attention. So you got to watch out having Cowboy Mouth on your bill. Or the Aquarium Rescue Unit. Oh! I used to play tons of shows with them, opening for them, though. But yeah, you're 100% right about that. The Southeast was unique in that way. And partially because, you know, prior to Hootie and Dave Matthews, the last time a Southeastern band had had any kind of national attention would have been REM or the B-52s. And that had been a while. And then before that, it was the Allman Brothers and maybe 38 Special or 
so the southeastern bands didn't get a ton of like big label attention so we were kind of or at least in my mind it looked like you could get on a circuit and just be playing the touring bars like that was as big as you could get and so to be able to do that we all had to help each other out and i think it was it johnny quest that got in the the wreck then they crashed their van yes and i remember it was a bad situation but everybody kind of rallied and and found another van for them to tour in and and replaced all their equipment and and that would be an uncommon example of how everybody sort of banded together to help each other back in those days and that you know he's 100% correct that's exactly the way everybody looked at it it's similar to sony it reminds me of how you initially met some of the guys that you ended up forming the the band with you had the fire in South Carolina and you're in the, the bar that time and the Hootie and the Blowfish had a different drummer in the early days and they passed a, a baseball cap to raise some money for you because you had lost everything in the fire and that was kind of in many ways your first introduction to those guys and a few months later you're playing in a self-storage unit with them and then you become the drummer and you go on to have such an amazing career you know, as Hootie and the Blowfish. It's almost not just band to band helping each other. It's musician helping musician. Yeah, I mean, there's several ways you can look up to someone, several different things you can look at and say, wow, that's a great thing. I'd love to keep, I'd like to be part of that. You know, you can be an amazing musician or or singer on stage or entertainer. You can have a, a great musical influence and tons of fans. We always, as musicians, looked at those guys on stages when we were kids, like, oh my God, I want to be part of that. But what the great thing about Hootie is the first, introduction to them besides mark was uh, another guy in our audio production class was when i got burnt out of an apartment complex along with about 10 other kids from school i walked into a bar to find solace and a drink and maybe somewhere to sleep because i didn't have a pillow or a toothbrush and here's mark bryan on stage here's this band i'd heard of them i didn't know anything about them except in about five minutes time i knew i loved them because they use their influence on a stage to pass a hat, to stop their music. And there were probably only 100 people there anyway. And I got 35 bucks in my pocket because of their love of somebody they barely knew. They just knew it was the right thing. So my idea was six months later, when I'm seeing an audition for Hootie the Blowfish, who wants to write original music, I'm like, oh, those are the freaking dudes that gave their time during their show on stage for me. And I could have been anyone. It was just that Mark recognized me from his class. And so he stopped it and said, there's Sony from my class. And, you know, it was an easy sell. I didn't know if they were great musicians or had a great singer or knew how to write songs even. But when the audition came up and that's who it was on the piece of paper, I said, oh, I I already love these guys. So our friendship was sort of forged uh, without us knowing it uh, six months earlier with the fire thing. But going forward, I realized, yeah, they're extremely average musicians. They don't know how to write songs. They need someone to take this thing over. So I, <laughs> of course, jumped up in the, the idea was philanthropy, of course. They need me, and I will give of myself. And so I joined Hootie the, Bat, the Blowfish, and, and uh, it was all fine. <laughs> it went pretty well. It went pretty well from that point. What do you think, Edwin? 
Well, you did show up with the biggest song. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, <laughs> you showed up with the song that broke it. So, yeah, I'd say that worked out pretty good. For that. Yeah. So tell me about that, Sony. What was, when did you write the song? How did you introduce it to the band? How did it, how did that all play out? In the little curious period there between February of 89, when I got burned out of everything and when I was trying to find a new place. And then if you lose everything in a fire, you do get the gift of a little perspective. And I started seeing it. I started having my heart worked a little differently after that and started seeing some of the stuff around me that had frustrated me for a while, a government that needed to work better, addiction that was frustrating, people that were left out, oppressed. All this stuff had me you know, try to put together lyrics in a song and it was hold my hand. And it was just to say, listen, y'all, I guess we can't wait for the government to fix us or help us or maybe somebody else. We need to help each other. So let's lift each other up. And that was the song on the audition that I sort of brought in when, when they asked, do you have any original material? I said, I have one good original material <laughs> that I like. It's got three chords and it's got some lyrics and it's probably very something we could sing along to and and they all liked it and i think that probably capped off the idea that well this guy knows how to write a song he can drum and sing a little background vocals let's push forward and so yeah it was just one of those moments that i wasn't looking or imagining great things i was just hoping for a little bit of acceptance I hope they like the song, and I'm glad that I could drum to the 42 REM songs that they demand to <laughs> put in their set every night. So I knocked them both out, and and like I said, on we went, naively and hopefully. Sticking on the topic of lifting others up, Edwin, Darius Rucker played a, a pretty significant role in you getting connected with Atlantic Records. Am I correct on that? Well, everybody did. I mean, all the, all the Hootie guys did and we were all playing shows together and and obviously the A&R people from Atlantic were there for Hootie and I think collectively they just said hey you need to sign him too and then Darius kind of sweetened the pot a little bit because Darius always loved this song that I wrote called Solitude and Darius said well look if you sign him I'll sing on that song with him I'll appear on the record too and they were like, yeah, okay, whatever you guys want. And so they kind of pried the door open for me, and I went. But I will say that after Solitude, I had to stand on my own, right? Because they were like, all right, well, it's great that you, you know, you, you're friends with this band, but now you're going to have to, like, turn in some usable material. And fortunately, I, <laughs> I was able to do that for the uh, – second album and the third album so it was touch and go there for a second because they said look if you don't the next thing you turn in needs to be good or you're getting dropped and mercifully that was i'll be and i've been riding that song ever since <laughs> well you've been riding that song and a, and a, and a whole pile of talent and a, and a lot more since then, I mean, obviously, uh, for the listeners, we're talking about Edwin's 90s hit, I'll Be, which spent 
24 weeks on the Billboard Top 100, I believe peaked at number five, an absolute smashing success. But so, Edwin, I want to go back a little bit. You talked about kind of being touch and go. And at some point, everybody has to stand on their own. How did it come together? You know, how, how quickly were you able to write that song once you kind of got this decree from Atlantic that, hey, you got to be able to produce something here pretty soon that we can work with? How did it all come together? I'll be in particular. It was sort of in a combination of things. I was in a bar in Chapel Hill called He's Not Here. And I overheard this drunk guy fumble the bag. He fumbled the words. He was like, he meant to say, I'll be a shoulder to cry on. And he just kind of, he fumbled it. He just went, I'll be your crying shoulder. And I was like, holy crap. And I wrote that down on a napkin and I stuffed it in my bag. And I used to just write down little things over the course of time when I was traveling and just stick it in my bag. And when I got home, I'd dump everything out and there'd be all these receipts and napkins and just stuff with scribble on it. And so I was home in Atlanta sitting on my little green futon. I had this apartment in Atlanta. I had a futon and a television and that was it. And I was like, this is great because you can sit where you sleep and sleep where you sit and it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the president of the record label had called and said, look, man, you got like, Whatever it is you turn in next needs to be great. And I was like, man, I got this napkin here. And I like everybody will tell you the the really good ones just sort of show up. And it was like a 15 minute thing. I wrote it. It kind of popped out, felt like it was a good song. And then I played it in front of an audience and was convinced in that moment. I was like, yeah, this is going to be good. And even though it was a good song, like the stuff that we did behind the scenes, because we we really didn't have any radio promo to speak of. They put it on three stations. And so I had all my friends go to those three cities and buy every record in the town and send them to us. And then we would sell them again at our shows and double the sound scan numbers just to get Atlantic to go, hey, something's happening. And, you know, I spent every last dime I had basically committing fraud to get our record to start moving. Because after that, Atlantic put it on Dawson's Creek and the sales went from 2000 a week to 25000 a week and it was off to the races. So, but yeah, it was a kind of a leave it all out on the field. Like I called my manager at the time, who was a friend of mine from college and just said, look, this is it. We're going back to our golf course maintenance jobs after this. So, you you know, we either spend every dime we have in this effort to get this thing off the ground or, you know, we're done. Like we had fun giving it a shot in the music business, but now it's over. And fortunately, it worked. It sure did. Sony, I'm thinking back to conversations that you and I have had about three-hour drives that you and the band took to play for two people who weren't even looking at the stage. They had their backs to you and you guys hanging up your own flyers, playing fraternity parties. Do you remember a time where, kind of like Edwin described there for him, where you felt like your backs were against the wall and you needed to come up with something really good, really quick? Talk about that for a minute. Yeah, and it, for us, it was probably on the journey upwards. And for to be clear, those two people that showed up in Greensboro did get to drink free Jaeger with the band because we weren't going to let them drink alone. We didn't want to drink alone. So we 
thank them for, I don't know why they were there. I'm not sure they knew why they were there, but there was two people there and they ended up drunk at the end of the uh, set. Our challenges were, you know, the first five years where we, like the Greensburg, you learn some hard lessons out there. You know, when you're just trying to get in front of people, you, you sign up for some dumb things or some bad things. You forget to put gas in a van. You park your car in the wrong part of D.C. and you walk out after sound check and all your possessions are gone. Like, you, it is a bit of a, you just got to do the dumb things to figure out that they're dumb. And so we had a lot of that. And one of the biggest ones, which I think would have probably broken up a lot of bands, is we signed a record deal that we thought was going to be our big break and in, in probably uh, sometime in 93 and 92. And, you know, here's the first sign that you don't want to sign with this record company who's based in LA is they they make you drive to LA from South Carolina in your freaking van. I'm like, we should have taken that and that was our own fault to say, are there airplanes that go right right there that if we're getting signed to a, a label in LA, we should be on an airplane? And uh, we didn't read that sign very well. And nine months later, after a lot of time and effort and and money spent and dreams broken, we had no record deal. And I think that was a big one for us where we easily could have said, you know what, yeah, this has been great. We got to play bars for four years. We met some cool people. We've written some songs we're proud of and put them on very inexpensive cassettes and let's call it a day and go back to wherever we were supposed to be. But we kind of pushed through that because we just felt like we were close to something. And if one label was willing to at least tell us they were going to sign us, <laughs> then maybe there's another label that actually will sign us. So we did. We put out another bit of music, and we went back. We, at that time, relied on songs that we knew that the audience would love. So we we didn't say, we've got to write the biggest hit. We felt like after four years of playing Hold My Hand and Only Want to Be With You and Let Her Cry in front of people, we just needed to get some record label to hear those songs. So we re-recorded a couple of those in charlotte and put it on a, this great new compact disc format and uh, it was brand new and we were damn cutting edge and it's what got us you know signed people started buying that and atlantic took notice about the math that was happening with our sales and they signed us we just knew that and that's part of edwin's journey too i, I think i can speak for him is that you you're out there when you choose to tour or when you choose to buy a van and drive around and just play it for people, you're test marketing your songs. You have a very valuable group of people in front of you, whether it's two or 200. They're either going to get a new beer or taking a pee when you play a song, or their toes are going and their hips are swaying. And when you see that night after night, you come up with some invaluable evidence. And it means that the song I'm doing, they're liking. So if we keep playing it to audiences, eventually somebody may take notice at a record label. So that was our five years of basically test marketing. And and I know that some songs that Edwin was playing, even in our early days, end up being songs that when he goes into the studio for a, you know, a big release, he says, I know some songs are going to be on there because the audience has responded time and time again. Tell me if I'm wrong on that, Edwin. Well, and you also notice, like, so we, and a lot of us went from playing fraternity parties that are free to play in the local club, which is, has a cover. And if you can make the transition to where, well, somebody got something for free and now they're actually pay for it, like that's really good affirmation that what you're doing is worthwhile. Now, 
also it drives home the importance of if the girls come to your shows, that's really all you got to worry about because the guys will come. (laughs) Yes. That's even a better, that's a more acute uh, test market there. How many girls in the front row means something. Show up and they're going to come listen to you play. Then the guys will be there too, whether they like you or not. (laughs) Tony, you mentioned the compact disc and I can't remember if I told you this last time, but I've been going back into my memory bank and I think Cracked Rear View was the first CD I bought with my own money as a kid. And I went to a Damn. store, which I don't think exists anymore, called Coconuts. The store was called Coconuts. Yeah. And I bought that compact disc. And I think it was the first one. You know, my, my parents had bought me CDs and we were part of one of the, the CD clubs. You know, they would mail you stuff. But I'm pretty certain it was the first CD that I went and bought with my own money at a cash register. So I gave you affirmation. I was going to say that that you know partly makes me feel old and from some other era, but it also what we have benefited so greatly having been the the age of artists who got you know we moved from cassette. We just sold those at our shows, but our first gold record has a cassette on it and a CD. So what happens if you're able to move through time and maybe have a gold record that stays on some radio station, even if it's oldies, you end up getting the benefit of moving from cassette to compact disc. And when that's over and there's a new format called downloading, I think at the time, if you can move to that and then move to streaming, you've just eclipsed more sales. So there I'm looking, Edwin's got his held up gold record with a cassette. I think it's got to to explain to my kids what that was. It's, I have to explain to my my kids what a CD is. So we're working through all the the generations. I don't know, Edwin, if you ever had to drive from South Carolina to Los Angeles to meet a record label, but I do know that you did, in addition to sending your college buddies out to buy as many of those albums as they could, I know you did a lot of creative things to market I'll be in particular. You would play anywhere people would have let you. You'd play pool parties. You'd play... Krispy Kreme donut drive-throughs. You had spiral notebooks, and you would call people every morning asking them to play your music or book gigs. Where did, and maybe there are some other fun things that you did that you can share as well beyond the list I just shared. But where did that work ethic come from? I didn't have any other. This was it. Like I, I have no. I mean, I guess the good news was. I had a different experience in that I was already making a pretty good living as a solo or as an acoustic guy playing the little bars in Hilton Head. And it was all cash money. I literally went from, I sort of gambled a pretty nice little lifestyle to get a band and go starve to death on the road. So once we got that going a little bit, and then obviously the radio promotion stuff like so so what's the game i said okay well you got to call that you got to get these radio programmers to play your songs on the radio station i was like okay well that's you know that's a for all the other things that have to happen in this industry so all this nebulous like alchemy that has to occur this seemed like an easy fix right okay so all i got to do is get on the phone <laughs> And just start blowing these guys up. Like this, this is something I can actually do that's gonna help 
get us there. Like all this other stuff is sort of left up to chance, whether people like it, whether it resonates, I can't force that, but I can absolutely blow this program director's phone up until he adds it. And honestly, at the time, not many artists were willing to just be so blatant about it. Like there was, and it, it worked in my favor because these program directors would be like, man, this kid is, he's relentless. Like, I had notebooks. <laughs> they would take the call even just, first of all, they'd take the call out of curiosity. And then secondly, they would take the call just out of humor's sake because they were like, man, he just won't quit. Like they would, they would put me on speakerphone just to listen to the, what's the spiel going to be today. Right. And uh, it kind of worked, but also Typically, and especially once artists get established and start doing well, like they're they're not going to go play the radio station sponsored hot dog party at the local pool, but I will. And because I'm willing to do this ridiculous stuff, I'm still friends with some of these guys. Like I, I played, I sang the anthem for the AFC championship game uh, five or six years ago. And uh, I called a programmer named John Ivey who was really important to us in the New England area. And I called him and he answered the phone. And I was like, hey, man, I just want to let you know, I just sang the national anthem in front of 20 million people because you added my song on the river back in the day. And thank you for that. And these relationships, you know, it starts out as kind of like, uh, it's a little obnoxious, but then what occurs is that you end up having a lifelong friendship with people because most of the people that work in this industry are good. And if you take the time to know them, you can have lifelong relationships. And that's been my experience. And I don't, you know, I just, the idea that I wouldn't, you know, what are you willing to do to get to do the thing you love for as long as you can do it, right? I'm not, I have no shame. <laughs> I have no shame. Jim, bring it on. Jimmy, I remember you, you we, we, it, was, it was in that same context of, the drum competition when you were younger. And I remember asking you like what ultimately propelled you to go into that competition that you were afraid to go into. And you said it was really this discussion with your drum teacher and your parents of like, why not? And did you carry that philosophy kind of like Edwin into a lot of the things that you would do I mean, from a standpoint of if there's something that I could do to keep this thing moving forward or get this snowball rolling down the hill faster, I'm going to do it. Yeah. I mean, there, I, I think in the drum contest, since I was a young man, you know, middle school, I was probably just wanting the approval of others. So I wanted my parents to, to like me a little bit. I wanted my drum teacher to like me and tell me I was good. So I was like, you're telling me I can do this and this will impress you if I say yes. So I, I probably went along in that regard. But later on, it's, you know, in a real business, you're, you know, while necessity is said to be the mother of invention, I think, I think desperation is too, to some degree, you know, musicians or artists that, that don't see themselves either in an office or in, in some business like that, a businessman, we will do anything slightly out of desperation to to make the thing keep going forward. So it doesn't take much to get the ball rolling forward. You get your first couple gigs that uh, work and there's people uh, responding and there's maybe 20 bucks in your pocket. That's enough to keep that 
desperation going. And as you go forward and you see how much more is at stake, maybe a record label will see you. Maybe one day you'll make an album. You know, desperation is okay to to me. It's a good feeder to say, I want this to to work, and I'll go do the dumb gig and i'll go maybe you don't even know it's a dumb gig you're just willing to have a little bit of hope for hope that if i go to greensboro this promoter said there's going to be 200 people at this new bar and that's worth the drive and let's go do it even if it inherently doesn't feel like it's going to work let's just trust it because we're desperate and you go do it and if you can't learn from it then you're you're probably not going to be in the business long but we always learned from some of these things and and Desperation works just as well downhill as well because we suffered from a period after the 2000s when the next new band that was popular and had cooler hair and tighter jeans, when they came along to just take us out of the top, you know, we went down. We went, we relied on corporate gigs and suddenly casinos and and fairgrounds and, and state fairs. It wasn't a horrible career, but it looked really sad compared to what we had come from so desperation at that level still means i'm gonna write a damn good song i'm gonna write a better song and it's gonna we're gonna get back on the charts or i'm gonna i'm gonna keep touring to keep our dwindling fan base alive a little bit so that we might be able to pass this on to the next generation so i desperation is is fair enough for me and when you're sitting on your last gig before you're about to enter a long dormancy and it's a steakhouse in some suburb of LA and you can hear the forks and knives clanking over sound check. You're ready for a break. Anyway, I don't know if desperation can even take care of that. We, that was our last gig in 2008 before we said, we got to just get away for a while and rest or get out of the way. And we did, we didn't know it'd be 10 years, but that's how long it ended up lasting. So Edwin, I want to go to you now. I mean, we talked about the work ethic years ago to kind of, get that wheel spinning and, and create momentum, really how both of you are just wired to create momentum. But the other thing I want to dig into with both of you is the creativity and how you are constantly pushing your creative limits. Edwin, I know you're still touring a ton. You play upwards of 75 to 100 shows probably a year. Sometimes you're, you're solo. Sometimes you're with a full band. Sometimes you add orchestras to the repertoire and you work with symphonies at different times. Sony, I know, obviously you had the storied career as part of Hootie and the Blowfish, but you've got a lot of solo stuff that you're doing now. As a creative, how do you find that zone where you can constantly push yourself to kind of go outside the boundaries of maybe what you were comfortable with to something new and innovative? Edwin, I'll go to you first. I don't know that I do that. In fact, like a lot of like, for the last, I don't even know, 12, 13 years, you know, people are go, would say, well, when are you going to put a new record out? And I'd say, well, I'm not going to. And they would go, well, why? And I'm like, you're not going to buy it. <laughs> Let's be honest, because I'm guilty of this, too, because like, I love ACDC. I love that band. But I, past Thunderstruck, I haven't bought a single ACDC record ever. Like, I love Back in Black. And I listen to that record all the time. And I know the way people are with music. It's You have some super hot diehard people that will buy or will engage with anything you put out. But the majority of people like what they like. And like when I would go see, see ACDC, I want them to play the set list 
that they always played, which was basically Back in Black with two new songs, one at the beginning, one in the middle, so you can go to the bathroom, and then finish the show with For Those About to Rock. And they did that every time I went to see them. And I got to a point where after 10 records, I know the set list that people want to hear me play, right? And so I know what my job is, is to go out here and play those songs for them because for them, it's important that they get to flip through that photo album. You know, it's a musical kind of photo album that they've attached memories to their life. And I even got to the point where I was teasing the audience. I'd walk out and go, okay, tonight, all new songs. And they would go, (laughs) "Ah, no, you know, like, so I found creativity in a lot of other ways. And I've, I've written a lot of songs and just sent them to people in an email because they, you know, a friend of mine had friends had personal situations that came along and I wrote them a song and I sent it to them and it's just for them. Right. It doesn't have to be always be for public consumption. And I found that my creative outlets came with restoring old jeeps and boats and crap and doing all kinds of other work that required some creativity. So it wasn't like I felt like I had to constantly occupy the music business to be creative. I find a lot of other places to be creative. And my theory has always been this whole time that we're going to cross the Rubicon where 90s nostalgia kicks in and everybody's going to be ready to hear from us again, hear from me again in that context, right? And we're going to be able to go out here and sort of be reintroduced. And I, I've been sort of patiently waiting for this moment, and it appears that it, is, it has arrived. <laughs> it has arrived. And before we get to the, the 2024 tour that's coming up, Summer Camp with Trucks Tour, Hootie and the Blowfish, Edwin, you're going to be out there at every tour stop with Hootie and the Blowfish. Jim, I want to kind of flip that question to you. Do you feel like you've been able to push your creative boundaries from my vantage point, it looks like you have. You, you've kind of challenged yourself into some of the new solo stuff. Right are you book. doing it through music or are you doing it through different different means like Edwin? I mean, there's a lot of outlets. If, you, if you're lucky enough to be able to manage to make a living or support a family because you know you're creative, whether it's music, books, or slapping paint on a piece of canvas, you're blessed. But you, I think part of the understanding is that I've come up with is I need to be in a creative project. It doesn't necessarily have to be drumming or writing for Hootie the Blowfish. And especially when we started to, to get close to a dormancy and, and that was coming, I realized that I, I made my first full solo album with Francis Dunnery in 2008 and released that. And though I didn't spend time to promote it, it was the release I needed because we had stopped writing together as a band for the most part. And as we go into dormancy, I've realized I have an expression I need to pay attention to. So though I was mo- mainly raising five kids and, and trying to be a better husband, I remarried. I, I also knew I need to create. I just need to. So I worked mainly out of my home. I, I listened to my heart, which at the time was like, I want to make this really Jesus-y music. So I put out three EPs over about 
four or five years that were like full on contemporary Christian. I loved it. it. I started getting in front of a new audience, but eventually even that changed. I decided I want to write a book about where I've come from and how I got to Hootie and what's happened in my life. So I write a, a whole book and then I look at my music a little later as, as Hootie's reuniting is that I want to express myself uh, without writing just contemporary Christian music. And I do another EP. So creativity can be a lot of different things. And I go out and do bookstores. Now I do corporate speaking and that feeds me just as, as it does on the music on the stage with Hootie. I just have to be out there. So I just have to be out there talking or singing about myself. Let's get honest. It's just gotta be about me. So if I can do that with the microphone, damn, I'm happy. I don't really even get paid much. I'll tell you that, but I'm glad I can uh, support my family with some old Hootie royalties. Well, you mentioned the book there. The book is Swimming with the Blowfish, Hootie, Healing, and One Hell of a Ride. Jim, it's a, I told you this last time we, we caught up. It's a fantastic book. I encourage everybody listening to go check it out. I mean, I can't do the book justice. You have to read it. To me, it's, it's so telling about the highs and lows of success and the way you work through both. And it's just such a compelling book. So thank you for putting it out into the universe. Yeah. Side note to that, Sonny called me up and, and asked me, and this this will give you a kind of more insight, not that you needed it, but asked me if it was okay to share some of the experiences we had, which I thought was incredibly cool and kind because what you wrote in the book was the truth. And you know, and you didn't really have to ask my permission to tell the truth about the things that that happened while we were out on the road. But I felt that like you were such like that was a classy move to offer me that kind of deference. And of course, I'm I was like, you know, that's what happened. You know, these are the things that happen. And and I think the most important part about what we do is that we we're emotional and we're honest. And if those two boxes are checked, then you're doing it right. And so yeah. I, I always, I always appreciated that. And I was, I was happy you included me. Well, you should be really thankful because I didn't call my bandmates to ask if they wanted to read it. before I, put it <laughs> I don't know what that means, but it, it just means I love you, man. It's okay. Oh, I, uh, and the best thing about writing a book, although it takes a damn long time is that never once in the writing or printing of that book did my lead singer Darius Rucker turn around when I sang flat and said, dude, you're singing flat. Cause you're just writing. There's no singing. There's no, you can't do it wrong. Somebody fixes all the grammar for you at the end. Anyway, <laughs> you gotta love it. You gotta love it. You guys, I've been, I'm so appreciative of your time. You've been so gracious with all the time. I want to just, before we wrap up, I want to talk about the upcoming tour and a little bit about what you know what you guys done recently. Jim, you recently released your debut solo album, which was originally from 2008, Snowman Melting, featuring your collaboration with Edwin McCain on the song No Reason. Edwin, like I said, you're you're touring right now. It seems like you're always touring, but you're all going to be out together. Hootie and the Blowfish and Edwin McCain. Summer Camp with Truck Store kicks off in May of 2024. I'm going to be there one or multiple nights. I can guarantee you that. I'm curious, Edwin, first, what are you looking forward to most about touring again with Hootie and the Blowfish? Just spending time with my friends. I mean, I, that the, the, the very first summer camp with Chuck's tour was a pivotal moment in my life. And 
truly the most fun I've ever had on the road. And honestly, too, it was a great education because they were not taking themselves too seriously. And had I been left up to my own devices, I would have been like David Lee Roth. I mean, I would have been like going off the deep end. And so it was a great, that whole summer was sort of the, hey, here's how to do this business and not be a jackass, right? And like, here's how to be nice and and have, you know, it just set the tone. It was, it set the tone for the fact that I, I left that tour and went on to have lifelong friendships for the next 30 years. Yeah, it's a good memory because you're right, Edwin. We we didn't know exactly what we were doing. We had kind of new to those big amphitheaters and a little naive, and that was a good thing. We made some mistakes, certainly, but there's nothing better than just following your heart out there and saying, hey, what's our priority for getting on a tour? Well, not sucking, keeping the ticket prices low, entertaining our fans, connecting with the, the biggest audiences we'd ever seen. So we, we had a pretty good intention. I think we stuck with the planning and and it ended up being great. And, you know, this summer when we'll also have Collective Soul out there with us, there's just great possibilities. You got three bands from the 90s that like to do the same thing, connect with their fans, have fun. I'm sure there'll be some experimenting where we're sharing the stage with each other each night. You know, it'll be just great possibilities is what I'm looking forward to. And if, and if this group of old fogies can actually stay healthy, it'll be a slight miracle, too, because I know we ain't getting any younger. Well, you got a couple of people are out getting their hips all fixed up and ready to go. And, and uh, you know, we're going to be all top notch, ready to rock. I'm going to I'm get leaving here and getting on the treadmill. <laughs> well, this summer. Jim, Sony, when we talked, I manifested this 2024 tour into existence because we talked about the 2019 tour, which is the 25th anniversary of your Cracker Review. I said, you got to call the manager and get something cooking for the 30th anniversary. We'll do the 2024. I'll see you there. And then I hope, what, 2029, we'll be doing it again. Should we call the manager? Let's get through uh, a few hip replacements and knee surgeries and and see how we feel. You know, I... When we talked last time, too, I, I never would have probably imagined that between your manifesting our tour and the tour that I'd have an album re-released that featured Edwin and I singing together and Darius and I singing together. So what that's the weirder part to me is that I, I figured we were probably going to tour again, but I didn't think that I'd have some collaboration that included uh, Edwin and I. So like that has really been the best part of sort of this year is to to fit something in there before we go back to work that's that I can call my own and I get the help of two of the greatest singers from the 90s, undoubtedly Darius and, and Edwin. Guys, this has been an absolute pleasure. I have enjoyed so much digging into your story. Again, Sony and Edwin, digging into yours for the first time. And it's just so evident talking to the two of you what the friendship and the partnership and the collaboration has meant to you both, both professionally and personally. And that's just, just so powerful. There is no question. The two of you are tarp pullers, certified tarp pullers here on everybody pulls the tarp. You're always leading by example, lifting each other up, doing whatever needs to be done to help your bandmates, to help the community. And uh, you're welcome here on everybody pulls the tarp all the time. I can't wait to see you at one or maybe multiple shows 
in 2024. All right, keep pulling the tarp, boys. Thank you. God bless. Thank you for joining me this week. Be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you can catch all of our upcoming episodes. And if you are like me and want a world full of tarp pullers, then leave a review to help others find us. You can also follow me on Twitter at Andrew H. Moses. That's Andrew H. Moses. And be sure to sign up for my email newsletter at everybodypullsthetarp.com slash newsletter. I'll share tips and insights to help you achieve maximum success and happiness. Today's a great day to pull the tarp. I am rooting for you. See you next time.